We do have a family that are joining us here at Beaumont that I need to bring to your attention a second reading of Shane and Mary Hilde from the Ridgecrest 7th Avenue Church and from the Dells, Oregon 7th Avenue Church. Are they here today? Would you please stand? Shane and Mary Hilde. There they are. We want to welcome you to the Fellowship of the Beaumont 7th Avenue Church. Is there a motion that we accept them into our church family? And there's a second. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed, it's carried. All right. Welcome to the Beaumont Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're glad that you have joined us here today. Our guest speaker this morning is Elder Homer Tricarian. He is an associate secretary of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And he's also the director of Adventist Volunteer Service and planning director for Adventist Mission. Just want to share a little tidbit with you or two about uh, our guest pastor today. Many years he served as a student missionary in Brazil. Since then, he and his wife, Barbara, and Barbara, would you stand so we could recognize you, dear? There she is. They, uh, they lived in Kenya, uh, Zambia, Lesotho, and most recently they spent a number of years in Cyprus, where they worked for the Middle East Union. They have three grown children and three grandchildren. And in their spare time, if there's such a thing for a pastor, they enjoy hiking and bird watching. And we are fortunate to have them with us today. May the Lord bless you as you open up his word to us. Thank you, Paul. And it is good to be here with you. I, I appreciated so much that song. I'm, I'm so thankful that wherever we're walking, Jesus walks with us, too, doesn't he? Not just us walking where he walked. We, I'm going to do something today that I don't like to do. And that is, when I finish preaching, I have to leave immediately. I'm, I'm at meetings at Loma Linda, and I'm supposed to be there at 1230 for another uh, speaking appointment there, and I told them, I don't think I'm going to quite make it at 12.30. And they said, okay, that's fine, we'll wait for you. But we have some good friends here in this church, Bert and Eloise Tinker, that we used to work with. And, and they had, when they heard we were coming, they had talked to the pastor and, and arranged things for us to be able to slip over here and then slip right back. And then Eloise has gone and gotten sick, so she couldn't even be here today and we couldn't get to see her. But we got to see Bert and we appreciated that. I can tell that you have uh, uh, quite, a, quite a lot of mission uh, in your blood here in this church. I, I, I know some of you have ties to China or have served in Africa or, or Peru and various places, mission trips that are going on. I'm very thankful to be involved with mission. We came back from the mission field when one of our sons had a very bad accident and his wife needed help taking care of him. So we came back to do that and we missed being in the mission field. But we're very thankful to be still connected with mission. I asked the deacons and I think maybe they gave you each one of these already. You don't need to read it now. You can look at it later. But it's a a brochure with some websites and things on the back. And even though I'm leaving right after the service, if you need to get a hold of us, you can do it through the website. Uh, There's a few of my business cards around. Uh, Bert and Eloise can certainly get a hold of us. 
One other thing you might watch for is every church gets four or five of this magazine each quarter. Mission Post, it's a bunch of stories of people that are out there volunteering as missionaries in different places. I think you might enjoy that too if, if you get a chance to look at that. But this morning I wanted to tell you a few stories and talk with you a little about mission. Normally I I will, when I can, wear a lapel mic and walk around, but I I think the pastor has that somewhere, and and so this will work fine. I'll be here, but if I start to get away from the mic and you're not hearing me, just motion to me to get back. I may forget what I'm doing. It was in Chukadum, South Sudan. A Dedinga farmer was stretching and yawning in the sunshine, afternoon sunshine, His rest period was over, and as he began to wake up and look around his fields down the hillside, his eye noticed some movement down in the lower cassava field, and so he reached in the hut behind him and got his gun and and began to slip from tree to tree, getting down closer to the field. Sure enough, he could see just what he had thought he had seen from up by the house. This Dedinga farmer was boiling inside. There were three Dinka herdsmen digging furiously in his cassava field during rest time when nobody was supposed to be up and around. He got a little bit closer to them and stepped out from behind the tree and he shouted, Hey, what are you doing digging my cassavas? The men looked up, startled. They hadn't thought anybody would be out this time of day. And almost instinctively, their eyes glanced to the edge of the field where their guns were laying, but they were too far away. So they smiled big, and they swallowed and said, "We, we, we, Don't worry, we're friends. Remember, a month ago our, our, our tribe signed a peace treaty, and we're, we're friends. He said, Right, we're friends. If we're friends, how come you're digging my cassavas? And he turned and started to run. He knew they weren't digging them for him. But three to one was kind of uneven, and so he started to run back up the hill, and they immediately dove for their guns and started shooting at him, but in their haste they were not very good aim, and they missed, and he crawled along behind some rocks to where he could see, and he began shooting at them, and bullets were pinging off the rocks and thudding into trees. Fairly common occurrence in Sudan in situations like that. And, and then he happened to hit one of them. And the other two grabbed their buddy by the arms and dragged him down the hill, zigzagging as they ran till they were out of gunshot range, picked him up, carried him to a clinic, checked him in, and then went out for revenge. These two Dinka herdsmen walking through town, looking, looking, looking for a Dedinga. Now you and I might not be able to tell the difference between a Dinka and a Dedinga. I think I can now, after living and working in that area. But but they could tell very clearly the difference between a Dinka and a Dedinga. And as they came around a corner, they saw a poor, unsuspecting Dedinga farmer. They shot and killed him and left his body there in the road and kept on going looking for more. And as they came around another corner, they saw one coming through the street and he saw them and he knew by the look in their eye that this was not a good situation and he began to run for his life down the alleys, around buildings, trying desperately to get away. Every time they'd come around the corner and raise their guns, he was off in a different direction. And then suddenly he took a turn and realized it was a wrong turn. There were buildings all around him. There was nowhere to go. 
He put his hands over his head and waited for the shots that he was sure would ring out. But just as those two Dinka herdsmen came around the corner and raised their guns, a door slammed and a Dinka lady came running out, threw her arms around that Dedinga farmer and looked coldly at her fellow tribesmen and said, Go ahead and shoot, but you'll have to kill me too. They yelled at her, they swore, they made all kinds of indecent accusations about her, but she wouldn't move. And they finally, their anger spent, they stomped off. Rebecca let this man go. She'd never met him before in her life. Rebecca wasn't an Adventist, and as far as we know, she wasn't a Christian yet. But Rebecca had worked for a couple of years for Adra there in Chukadum, South Sudan. And she had been amazed at what she saw. Because in that Adra group, there were people from all kinds of different tribes working together. She hadn't experienced that in her life before. There were people from Rwanda and Uganda and Sudan and Kenya. There were people from America and Australia and the Philippines and India all working together. Different tribes working together for everybody. She was so curious as to what made them do this. Why were they different from everybody that she had grown up with? She was so curious that she would sometimes stay by after work at night, sit off in the shadows and listen to them as they sat around their campfire, listen to them sing, listen to them read from a book, listen to them talk to somebody they couldn't see. And little by little, Rebecca's life began to change. Change to the point where she was willing to cross cultural and, and, and linguistic and ethnic boundaries and save the life of a man that she had never met before. A man who was frighteningly different from herself. Knowing Jesus changes us, doesn't it? Have you ever come across a situation where you wondered if you should help the person or not? You know, maybe they're standing at a street corner with a sign that says, we'll work for food. Or maybe, like, I don't know who met them, but I saw a couple of men drive in this morning with a couple suitcases in the back end, and, and they looked like they were looking for someone to give them a room for the night. And I heard one of the elders talking to them. I don't know what finally developed. But we wonder in those situations, should we help? What could we do to help? If we help, will it really be a help? And almost every time we experience that, a certain story in the Bible comes into our minds, doesn't it? You know the story. It's in Luke chapter 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Every time we face a situation where we feel like we we maybe should help, but we're not sure if we should, and we maybe somebody else should, is better equipped to do it, and every time that happens, we remember this story, don't we? And we feel a little guilty. Luke chapter 10, uh, let's start in verse 29. But he, this lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. You know, some days, the rest of the day, after we've had one of those experiences, we're thinking, boy, I think I acted like the priest today. Or maybe I was more like the, the Levite, I at least went and looked. Sometimes we even feel like the man in the ditch, don't we? Life has left us beaten and bruised and nobody seems to be paying any attention. But we know when Jesus asks the question to the lawyer, which one was the neighbor? We know what we should answer, don't we? We know what we should have done. We know we should be like that Samaritan. We know we should answer like he did. Verse 37, the lawyer answered, He who showed mercy on him. We know that's what we should do. We should be the one showing mercy. But you know, there's one more person in the parable. One more person that showed mercy. And I've wondered why Jesus added verse 35. You know, I stopped at verse 34, where it said that he poured on oil and wine and he set him on his own donkey and took him to the inn and took care of him. I stopped there. And Jesus could have stopped the story there. He could have asked at that point, which one was the neighbor? And it would have been clear. It was the Samaritan that took care of the man and helped him. Why did he go ahead and add verse 35? Why did he introduce a new person into the story? Verse 35 says, On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Why did Jesus add the innkeeper? Who is the innkeeper in the parable? You know, before I answer that, let me share, remind you of a few other illustrations that Jesus used. We sing a song and we go like this with the kids. What's the song? This little light of mine. We say we are supposed to be lights, don't we? But Jesus is the light of the world, right? We talk about being sheep, but he is the Lamb of God. We talk about being shepherds to the flock that he has given us, but he is the good shepherd. And could I suggest that we are to be like Samaritan neighbors, but he is the good Samaritan. And if he's the good Samaritan, maybe in this parable, we are the innkeepers. You know, we go about our work day by day. We're, we're busy cleaning rooms and checking people in and out of our hotel, so to speak. We're wheeling carts down the hallways of the hospital. We're driving bus and working a second job in pennies at night. We're, whatever we're doing, all of us, even the retired folks, all of us sometimes seem busier than what we can cope with. We seem like we're just barely able to keep up with time, with finances, with our emotions. And then Jesus comes into our life. And He doesn't just want a room in our inn, so to speak. He's bringing somebody with Him 
and we feel like He's asking us to take care of them and we say, no, Lord, I just don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have the emotional resources to deal with this person. That happens to us, doesn't it? We all have had that experience. The Good Samaritan bringing someone into our lives and asking us to do something we don't feel able to handle. Now I want to ask you about that innkeeper. What nationality was he? The Bible doesn't say what nationality he was. That's right. And it really doesn't matter because either way, that poor innkeeper had a problem. Let's assume for a minute that he was a Jew. If he was a Jew and suddenly they're standing in his doorway, you know, he's busy working at the counter and suddenly they're standing in his doorway is this hated Samaritan. Not only that, he's a blood-covered Samaritan and he's dragging with him a half-dead Jew that he says he rescued from the ditch. Right, he rescued him. Probably he got in a fight with him and almost killed him and now he wants to dump him on me before he dies. Innkeeper would have had a problem if he was a Jew, wouldn't he? But he also would have had a problem if he's a Samaritan. He's there working at his desk and suddenly the door opens and here is this stupid Samaritan dragging a half-dead Jew with him. Why didn't he just leave him in the ditch? One less Jew would have been good for the world. Either way, that poor innkeeper had to cross cultural, ethnic boundaries and deal with somebody that he didn't want to deal with, or at least that most of his people would not have wanted to deal with. It wasn't just the Samaritan that showed mercy. It was that innkeeper who crossed those boundaries and took care of that man. You notice what that Samaritan says to the innkeeper as he leaves the next day. He lays down two coins and he says, I'm giving you what you need to take care of him. You know, when the Good Samaritan comes to us and brings somebody into our lives, brings us in contact with them, he always says to us, I'm giving you what you need to take care of them. And we laugh or we cry. and We say, it doesn't look like it to me, Lord. She was too young to be a missionary. At least that's what everybody thought. She was only five. Her family lived in, in uh, Collegedale, Tennessee. They were part of a program called Kids in Discipleship. You may have heard about it. It's a program that trains parents to work with their children and, and together as a family unit be disciples, bringing other people to Jesus. Part of the training was planning for a mission trip, but they were looking at the 8 to 13-year-olds. This little 5-year-old, she was too little. But because she was part of the family, they let her come along and she just kind of ran around and played. They didn't train her. They made all the plans. They got on the plane, took off and landed, I don't remember where in South America, but somewhere in South America. They started into their activities, everybody busy doing what they had been trained to, except the five-year-old. She was too little to be a missionary. They were in the middle of a vacation Bible school program. Her mother was leading out and some of the older ones were helping. When suddenly in the middle of the program, the little five-year-old got up, walked out the door and started going across the empty lot and just heading away. I mean, she was on a mission, obviously. No pun intended. The mother didn't know what to do. 
She was leading out in the group. She couldn't leave them, but she couldn't let her little girl wander off across a strange country, and so she called one of the local elders and she said, would you just follow her? You don't have to do anything. Just make sure she doesn't get lost and hurt. They were gone a long time. Finally came back into the room and sat down, and at break time, the elder came up to the mother and he said, I didn't know your little girl knew Spanish. No, she said. She doesn't know Spanish. We've never lived near anybody that speaks Spanish. He said, wait a minute. I just followed her over there and I listened for 15 minutes while she talked to that group of kids over there in beautiful Spanish. (laughs) No, the mother said, you understand both languages and somehow you just are mixed up. She called the little girl up and she said, honey, where did you go a few minutes ago? Oh, mommy, she said, Jesus told me those kids didn't know about him, and I should go tell them. Five years old. Mommy said, that, that, that's nice, honey. But how did you tell them? You don't speak Spanish. Well, mommy, she said, Jesus told me to go. So I prayed, and he stuffed the words in my mouth. But she said, I'm tired of talking Spanish now, and she ran off to play with her English-speaking friends. Oh, that we would be like little children, believing that when God says to us to do something, that He has provided what we need to do it. But instead, a new neighbor moves into our community and we say, "Uh, Lord, uh, I don't understand them. You're going to have to find somebody else. That's the way we deal with it, isn't it? But she believed that Jesus had fulfilled His promise and given her what she needed to take care of that, that job that He had assigned her. You know, here in North America, we have a huge challenge. We have a challenge around the world. I could tell you of places where there are millions of people that have still never heard the name of Jesus, let alone met a Seventh-day Adventist Christian who could work among them. During Sabbath school, I told you about Turkey, where there's one Adventist for every million people. Free country, but one for every million. Here in the United States, we have one for every 320. Makes me feel a little guilty for where I am. But all around us, if God has placed us here, and I believe He has, if God has placed us here, all around us, there's still a mission field, isn't there? There are people in our communities that need to hear the gospel. Do you know that recent research troubles me terribly? It showed, this was Christian, not just Adventist, Christian. It says that in in the United States... 77% of the Hindus that live here don't know a single Christian personally. Now, wait a minute. Hindus. When I check into hotels, it's often a Hindu checking me in and out of the hotel, right? People from India. There are also many that are working in our hospitals and, and businesses. There are many that are working in restaurants. There are Hindus all around us in North America. 77% of them don't know a single Christian personally. They wait on us, they talk to us, but they don't know us. And we don't know them. 64% of the Buddhists don't know one Christian that they can call a friend. Now tell me, are there any Buddhists living in California? There are lots of them. 64% don't know a single Christian personally. 33% of the Muslims 
don't know a single Christian personally, and we live in a free country, how, how will we ever take the gospel to the world if we aren't using the opportunities Jesus has given us here to reach across those cultural and ethnic boundaries and touch the lives of the people that he's brought into our realm of influence? And then did you notice what else he says there in verse 35? He says, I'm giving you what you need for today to take care of him. And when I return, whatever else it has cost, I will repay you. Jesus says to us, I'm giving you what you need for today. And whatever other sacrifices you are called on to make doing my work for me, I will repay you when I return. Our four-wheel drive vehicles were clawing at the ground in the, in the bush of Zambia. We were, we were on a trip. We were going out to a little, little mission outpost in, in, it's called Lushomo, way out in the bush, passing through the African bush on a little two-track lane, churn, uh, piles of dust, billows of dust being poured out from our vehicles. It didn't matter which side of the road we drove on there. In Zambia, they drive on the other side of the road from what we do. But out there in the bush, it didn't make any difference. We passed little clusters of huts here and there. And at one hut, I slowed one cluster I slowed down because there were men with big long poles beating on their thatch roof. And I wondered, what are they doing? Well, they saw me slow down and they proudly dropped their poles and showed me what they were doing. They held up by their naked tails handfuls of dead rats that they had killed in those thatch roofs. They were getting ready to cook them for supper. I shuddered and drove on. We came finally to the, to the beautiful little clinic, school, church, mission compound, beautiful little place out there in the middle of nowhere. A fairly big church, not quite as big as this one, but fairly big. And I asked them, how many people go to that church every Sabbath? I mean, it seems like, I don't know where you'd get them all, but there are lots of clusters of houses. How many people? Oh, they said, not very many. And I laughed. I said, not very many. Here in Africa, when you say not very many, you think of, you know, well, we only have a thousand people coming for camp meeting. Um, Not very many. What do you mean? Oh, he said, just, you know, 10 or 20. I said, in that big church and this bustling clinic and school, you only have 10 or 20? What's wrong? Oh, he said, we feel that God has asked us to be responsible for the people around us. Now, you know, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? He said, we feel we've been asked to be responsible for the people around us, so, so we, most of us, get up early every Sabbath morning, and we go hold branch Sabbath schools and Bible study groups in every community and cluster of huts within a four-hour walk. I said, let me get this right. You get up early on Sabbath morning, and you walk two hours, and you hold a branch Sabbath school, and then you walk two hours back, and I was feeling terribly guilty. Oh, no, no, he said. We get up very early Sabbath morning. We walk four hours and we hold a branch Sabbath school and we walk four hours back. And he said we would go further, but we can't get back before dark and it's too dangerous to be out after dark. You know, they took Jesus seriously. When the good Samaritan said to them, I've given you what you need to take care of the people around you, they said, okay, 
We don't have cars. We don't have motorcycles. We don't even have bicycles, most of us. But God gave us two legs. And we're going to use those to reach every person we can reach around us. I walked on down through the sesame fields and into a little clearing in the woods where there was a beautiful little mission house. And as we were standing there looking around a big old tree out in the center of the clearing, and I noticed a gravestone at the foot of the tree, and I walked over expecting to see the grave of a grizzled old missionary who had given his life there for the people of Africa. But instead, I saw a grave of a little baby, 18 months old. Died, it died just a year or so before I was there visiting. It was an American name. I didn't really recognize it. But they told me about the family. They told me about the young missionaries, a couple of volunteers, basically. They didn't work for a salary. They got a little stipend like volunteers get. They lived, they'd come there to that mission outpost and poured out their hearts there for the people. But one day, while the father was in town with the only vehicle, the baby had come down with a, with a terrible case of malaria and died before the father could get back. They buried him there under the tree. And I cried for them. I prayed for the family as I stood there. And then as the years went by, I forgot about them, basically. Last year, I think it was last year, about a year ago, I was down at a, at a little church in Kentucky. I had been talking about the sacrifices that missionaries are often asked to make. I hadn't remembered this story at all, but I had talked about other sacrifices and after the service, a young lady came up to me, tears streaming down her cheeks. She said, I understand about sacrifice. She said, my husband and I went as missionaries to Zambia and our little baby got malaria and died and we buried him under a tree there. And I started to cry with her because I had stood by her baby's grave. You know, Jesus says to us, I'm giving you what you need to take care of the people around you. And whatever other sacrifices you are called on to make, I will repay you when I return. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I believe as we stand there on the sea of glass that day, we aren't going to be pulling a checklist out of our pocket and saying, let's see, did he repay me for that and for that and for that. I think on that day we will admit that heaven was cheap enough, that the good Samaritan fulfilled his promise and repaid us abundantly for every sacrifice he asked us to make. Some of you have made sacrifices like that. Some of you have loved ones that may be buried in another country. Some of you have made sacrifices right here. Jesus promises that He's giving us what we need for today and that when He comes again, He will repay us for whatever else it has cost.
I want to challenge you to be missionaries in your community. Cross those boundaries that terrify you. Reach out to the people around you. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if you were to buy an Arabic language program or a, or a Mandarin language program and, and start to learn it and, and go to one of those restaurants and practice your words and watch their eyes light up and then begin to make a friendship and invite them to your home and they could invite you to, your, to theirs. And over a period of months and years, at the very least, they couldn't say they don't know any Christians. But who knows what an impact you might have on them. And then be faithful in your tithes and your mission offerings so that we can send more missionaries to the mission field. We need hundreds more. And if God calls you to go, or calls you to let one of your children or grandchildren go, let them go. And even if they end up buried under a tree in some remote country, remember, God will repay all the sacrifices that we make. I pray that you'll be faithful missionaries and that soon we'll be standing on that sea of glass together welcoming Jesus and thanking Him for what He's done for us. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 365. Number 365.
Oh Lord, thank you for those glad tidings that we know. And I pray that you will help us to take you seriously and know that if you can stuff words in a five-year-old's mouth, that certainly you can give us answers to the questions a coworker may have, or you can give us wisdom to know how to deal with situations in our neighborhood. Lord, I pray that we will listen to you as the Good Samaritan and that we will follow your example, that we will accept that you have given us what we need for today. And then may we look forward with confidence to that day when you will repay us for any other sacrifices you've asked us to make. I pray that you will go with us today, that you will fill each of us with your Spirit and use us powerfully as missionaries for you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.